posts with the hashtag disassociative identity disorder and borderline personality disorder viewed hundreds of millions of times. Something is wrong with your child. There are brain health issues that steal your mind, your, your mind. And we know, for example, that it takes a professional really to sort out the difference between a symptom and an actual clinically relevant diagnosis. We have the solution. We have research scientists in white coats that are working in state-of-the-art labs. And we have all these pills regulated by a, by a uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration that's devoted to your interests. And it has this bill, which I actually happen to have a free sample with me. And I'll just give it to you because it's indicated for your depression. And I treat people just like you. And I notice incredible results when I do it. This is well studied. Trust me. And I'll follow you. You'll come back to see me in a couple of weeks. We'll see how it goes. Welcome to Disorderland. It's like Disneyland, but much, much worse. My name is Jesse Meadows. I'm a writer, an artist, and an avid collector of PDFs. And I'm Aisha Khan, a germ doctor, infectious disease scientist, artist, and abolitionist educator, bridging science with social justice and geopolitics. And we will be your humble guides through the weird and terrible world of capitalist mental health. We were inspired to make this podcast when we realized that there wasn't anything like it that bridges science, medicine, and social justice and looks at things like mental health, trauma, and neurodiversity through a critical abolitionist, anti-capitalist lens. We also speak from experience as neurodivergent survivors of the psychiatric system, and we want to share some of the things that we've learned. We're also going to talk to people who are working to abolish that system and replace it with a model based in collective care and liberation. On today's episode, we'll talk about how fucked up it is that capitalism convinces us we're all diseased just for the suffering we experience trying to survive in a society that wasn't built for us. We'll take a look at how and why self-pathologization is trending on social media, discuss the pros and cons of psychiatric diagnosis, and analyze who's really winning when we categorize our suffering using the DSM. Okay, so I've been seeing a lot of news lately, I don't know if you've seen this, about this dangerous new trend of people self-diagnosing on TikTok. Teens diagnosing themselves after scrolling through video after video of users highlighting various symptoms or personality traits. People post about a symptom that they have. And then later on in the thread, people are like, oh my gosh, I have ADHD because I do this as well. And what I think is really interesting about these stories is that they're not usually mad about the pathologizing, but they're mad that people are diagnosing themselves because this is really supposed to be like the realm of doctors and specialists, like, you know, medical authorities. That's who's done the pathologizing historically. And I don't know, Aisha, do you want to briefly explain what that big word means (laughs) (laughs) okay so the the whole uh, idea of pathologization is reducing any uh any divergences that we have in our personality or behaviors to biological deficits diseases and deformities and this lens is essentially what's used in colonial psychiatry to diagnose people that diverge from capitalist norms as mentally ill and and now, even under the mainstream umbrella of neurodivergence, a lot of times we haven't really undone this whole idea that something's fundamentally wrong with our bodies and our biology if we're just having a difficult time adapting to a very oppressive society that we live in. So our suffering is valid and our pain is valid, but how we frame that suffering and pain as either a response to systemic oppression or an innate biological disease definitely changes and shapes the, the approaches that we take to actually address the problem. I guess in, in, in one lens, people are disabled because there's something inherently wrong with them and they have all these deficits and that's the medical model. Or the lens that society disables you by being inaccessible and fundamentally built by people in power for uh, people that can fit into whatever is the ideal capitalist worker, basically. So I thought it would be fun to take a little stroll through ADHD talk and look at some of these videos that the kids are making. How do you do, fellow kids? 
Um, <laughs> but I think this will help us try to understand what kinds of things they're pathologizing about themselves. And maybe we can break down some of these things a little bit and talk about what purpose it might be serving for people and why self-pathologization has become such a big trend. And having said that, we were these kids at some point, just not without the technological platforms that these kids have access to. So we also went through the whole arc of trying to figure out what the hell was quote unquote wrong with us and getting a diagnosis and then navigating the whole psychiatric system and going through medications and trying to figure out how we can better fit in and assimilate and whatnot and arrived at the viewpoint that we currently did. So we're acknowledging that there, there is an arc that people go through. But that the arc of radicalizing and politically understanding your suffering and also politically understanding the context of the systems that lead to your suffering will basically allow you to skip to the, skip to the end where you can actually see that, that you're not alone and that there's a lot of people out here who do share your experience and your struggles, which means that we can actually build together towards collective solutions. So this first TikTok that I have for you is pretty straightforward and it's kind of like somewhat of like a genre of TikToks where people take things that used to be personality traits to them and now have turned they've turned them into symptoms of disorder. Things I thought were personality traits that were just my undiagnosed ADHD. I have zero concept of time. Like none at all. I could legitimately think something's gonna take me like 10 minutes and three hours could go by and I have no idea. I can't remember anyone's name. Like, and it's not because I'm not involved in the conversation. Like, I can, I'll remember little details about your life. I'll like, I'll remember our inside jokes, our conversations. I will not know anyone's name. And I feel so bad because then how do you ask? How do you ask? I interrupt people all the time and I hate it. I know it is so rude, but it's just like, I have a thought and I just, I have to say it like I have to. If I don't want to do something, I just simply will not do it. Like I cannot express this enough and it's not because I'm lazy. It is not, I could sit down and do something I wanna do for like seven hours and not even blink. But like, if I don't wanna do something, I'm just, I'm, no. Okay, oh my God, okay. <laughs> I have feelings, so many feelings. <laughs> okay, I I'll say what she said and I guess, uh, the fa or we can talk about some of the fancy names they used to describe these things and then I'll just talk about what I was hearing. <laughs> So the first one was time blindedness, right? And, and she was just like, I have no concept of time. And well, first of all, time isn't really a concept. Like, I mean, it, it is a social construct, but it's not a physical, uh, a physical law of nature in that everybody's perceptions of time are already different. Like how we count how many hours there are in a day and how many minutes there are in an hour to how we think of a year. Like people follow the sol solar calendar or the lunar calendar. So the perception of time is, is something that is totally just a social construct that, that isn't is different depending on the context so so for me uh what she was saying is when you're doing something that you really care about and are interested in time will go by really like really fast and you won't even because you're just doing something that you like so like we said time is a construct based on context it literally is for every individual person how you perceive time basically means if you're bored if anyone is bored bored out of their mind and they're having to do nothing for like 10 minutes. Those 10 minutes are going to seem excruciatingly long just because you're not also being busy with your, with whatever you're, what else that you could be doing that interests you. So this is just something every human being has. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and it's not something very specific to ADHD. Something else that I always think about when we talk about time blindness or this like ADHD concept of time blindness is that there are different ways that cultures conceptualize time. So monochronic cultures like America and a lot of Europe conceptualize time in a linear way. They schedule one thing after the other. They don't multitask as much and their priorities are about finishing tasks and completing goals. And polychronic cultures like a lot of Native American, indigenous cultures um, will schedule a lot of things at once, not be so concerned with finishing a task, but be more concerned with community and relationships and work in a more nonlinear way. So I think it's actually really offensive to say that someone who is not monochronic is time blind because this perception yeah. of time is so yeah. cultural. Yeah. And I think I, I, I was uh, noticing that when you said monochronic cultures, you were basically referring, referring to all colonial nations, essentially. So all of Europe and America, New Zealand and Australia, Canada, et cetera. And then polychronic cultures were essentially black and brown communities that, that used to be colonized. So to me, I was also 
um, just just culturally from my background. So um, I'm Afro Indian, and I think to me the idea of polychronic time was just always normalized as a kid. So just understanding that our cultures are very complex, and even having the idea of a relationship with like, your ancestors and just the nonlinearity of time was a big part of our culture. Um, and it just taught us that a level of like complexity that we could see the world with, I guess, rather than being a binary, which I think is what a lot of monochronic cultures like you talked about are. Um, and also I, I had the word respectability politics popped up into my head um, because I see everything about politeness and niceness and doing things in a very ordered fashion and being very strict and, and, all this as like Victorian moral code from colonialism and everything as the antithesis of that, which is flamboyant cultures that are extravagant and loud and, and have a lot of like heterogeneity and not homogeneity. All of these things are then automatically perceived as negative, but that's exactly what's happening in a diagnosis. So you're just picking something that's different and is not in relation to whatever the dominant group has said is normal and then considering it an actual symptom, which is what these are called. Yeah, turning that cultural perception of time into a disease or a disorder. Right. But I think pointing that is really important because technically then what you're saying is black and brown cultures inherently are time blind. And <laughs> then you would be diagnosing a good chunk of the global south as as disordered and defective and diseased. And we're going to tie this to, to, to basically how the concept of race was created in the same fashion as the concept of mental illness. Um, and... The next thing that I uh, that I noticed in the TikToker was interrupting. And I think we've heard this a lot in general with like ADHD as being this hallmark of people that interrupt. And well, when I was noticing that, I mean, I do this all the time, but in my head, I had to understand why I do it, which I think I eventually realized a lot of people around me do it. But also I noticed that it was something that was explicitly pointed to me a lot more often when I moved to the United States and I moved here when I was 17. So then so many people pointed out that I was quote unquote rude or aggressive because I would interrupt. Whereas like we, I don't know, my family like shouts over each other all the time. And like, that's how our gatherings are. And, and to me, that was a sign of someone being deeply invested and excited and interested in what you have to say and all of this energy. And because we're more quote unquote flamboyant, we're more expressive um, that we just like express ourselves sometimes by like just talking over each other. And it's not perceived as offensive or bad because it just is. And then seeing this as a form of politeness, basically to not interrupt, it is something that has been policed and in, in, in something that people do. And then assigning that an arbitrary like value of this is negative because this person is inherently rude and offensive for some reason, because they just did something that's neutral. Yeah, and I think America especially because we have this like service economy. So we're very focused on like how can we how can we do customer service and like have like the right like social kind of like doing everything with a smile and like networking and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, um when I when you were saying socializing or just the idea of socializing, I also thought of like the first thing I noticed when I culturally, a lot of the culture shock uh, with American culture was noticing this obvious toxic positivity, what people call toxic positivity. But basically to me, I just noticed that people were fake as in they would be like, hi, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. How are you? And like, no one's listening and, and yeah. basically be very inauthentic to each other. And it was important that you smiled at each other, regardless of how you actually felt so people were by default just more dishonest to me, more more shielded and had this, um, essentially what I now realize is commodifying yourself and marketing yourself. But people would be this like cookie cutter, polite and say the same things and do the same things and be very homogenous in a, in a creepy way. And um, yeah. I would not do that. So because it just didn't come to me. So when I ask people, how are you? That means I have the next 20 minutes to sit down and talk to you about how you actually are. But I don't do, I smile, but I will not just like say things like that in passing just because I'd never, never did that. And that was arbitrarily, again, people have actually told me that people perceive me as being aggressive or intimidating because of that, which again is a negative, negative assignment to something that is, I think to me, just a very massive cultural divide. And I think the cultural divide doesn't just come from, I want to like recognize that positivity is labeling something and focusing on what it looks like on the cover, so marketing, and 
All of that just comes from this internalized capitalism that we all have, as well as neoliberalism. And neoliberalism basically is like the political backbone of capitalism where you focus on what things look like on the outside and use that to manipulate people rather than uh, doing anything real and substantial in terms of change. So yeah, I just noticed it was just like- like, It's all about the self. Like neoliberal values are all about the individual and the self and how you can fit yourself into yeah. society and how you can change yourself. And if you don't, then you're diagnosed with something, basically. And yeah, that's... if you don't, then you have a disorder. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I also noticed uh, at the end, one of the ones that, that she ended off with was how she just cannot sit down and focus and do something. And she literally says this out loud, unless she really is interested or cares. I think that's every human being on the planet to some degree, right? The level yeah. of, of discomfort they feel might be to different varying degrees, but that's a million environmental variables influence that. But at, at baseline, the fact that people are more likely to be able to do something they're more interested in for longer periods of time is a very logical concept. And that's how yeah. all our brains work, not just, <laughs> I don't know, ADHD brains. <laughs> yeah, there's this thing that a lot of people talk about in ADHD spaces of an interest-based nervous system, which I think don't, doesn't make any sense <laughs> because we all are like driven by our interests, you know, and I think it's dehumanizing in a way because you're implying that like other people who don't have ADHD diagnoses are these like automatons that will just like do like monotonous tasks all day and be fine. But because you have an interest-based nervous system, you can't do it. And like, I just, I don't think that's true for like humanity at large, you know? Well, but it does make sense when you think about everything in the context of capitalism. And I guess that's what we'll focus on in our podcast in general, just the impact of a a very uh, brutal society that's essentially told you that you don't have the right to live and you're born and you don't have the choice, you just are. And once you get here, you're told that you have to earn the right to live and survive. So you are never guaranteed the right to life. And you're you're given no guarantees of food, shelter, community care, water, access to essential survival resources. And I think that then, to me, uh, everything that's abnormal in capitalist society is what doesn't make you and uh, like what would what would harm you from being a productive capitalist worker. And so their interests are really we're talking about the interests of, of the one percent. So in a capitalist society, to survive, the only way you can earn the right to survive is by selling your body and mind in the form of labor. And we call that work. And we've talked about this before, but how the DSM-5, which is the 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 bedrock of diagnosis in psychiatry, um, is essentially a list of, of traits that are divergent or diverge from whatever the norm is. And the way that they diverge, though, that the qualities are very unique in that it's all focused on the concept of work capitalism, school, so these institutions that are totally social constructs, and arbitrary assignments of X trait being inherently defective or sign of of being defective because someone just called it negative, but there being no real psych, like actual physiological measurement. So in a, a diagnosis in psychiatry, you don't measure anything. So you just basically count how many symptoms you have, right? Okay, this is a great introduction to another video that I have for you which I'm calling Welcome to ADHD. This one is intense, so get ready. You're about to learn something that is not yet common knowledge in society, but will probably shock you. Wait until you hear this one. They don't even know what to call it yet. This is a genetic disorder. So people are born with it and stuck with it for their entire lives. These people are born with misregulated dopamine, which is the chemical in the brain that is responsible for desire, motivation, pleasure, including contentness. To put it in perspective, if we had no dopamine in our brain at all, we would be catatonic because you need dopamine to have the motivation to even walk or brush your teeth, simple tasks. When these people are low on dopamine, they don't even have the motivation to walk or do simple tasks. They are paralyzed. Many of them will get paralyzed multiple times a day. Lack of dopamine also causes excruciating discomfort and displeasure, so they're usually in hell. Welcome to ADHD. So one, it has these like hardcore Mad Max apocalypse, just Hunger Games, divert i don't even harry potter i don't even know like it was just like what am i watching is it a caricature of someone i didn't i couldn't tell if she was being serious the whole time (laughs) um and she was just totally being serious and i noticed the first thing that caught my eye was the hardcore medicalization 
of taking mm-hmm. something like, well, the, and what they're talking about is dopamine deficiency or the whole idea, which is a myth really of chemical imbalances as being the biological uh, disease or, or defect that causes different types of neurodivergence. Um, but the way she was framing it was like, okay, there's these people, you guys, like these like creepy goblins that <laughs> that do not have dopamine and can't move. And I was just imagining like, also, I don't, yeah, I don't, <laughs> it was painting a very strange picture. And <laughs> also the, the act of, I mean, she talked about it as paralysis, right? And paralysis is real. So, so there's a lot of real, um, real uh, medical conditions and illnesses that are physiological that do cause paralysis. One of them being neurological trauma. So trauma to the brain. And, uh, and it made sense to me that that's a thing. But then connecting that to this like scary group of people that exist that all have this dopamine deficiency. And I mean, it just seemed like it was scaring you about this fatal illness that's out here and almost in a way that made it sexy though. Like, like it was desirable (laughs) to like, I don't know, like I couldn't tell which angle this was coming at it from. I think it's, um, really interesting that we're using this language of dopamine deficiency to express certain experiences because I don't want it to sound like we're saying that these experiences of distress are not real. They are certainly describing something that's really happening. And like, I understand what that feels like. It's happened to me where you're just like, you're overwhelmed and you can't move and you can't do like these really basic things that you need to do every day. But we're turning it into this like chemical neurobiological thing by saying like, oh, it's my dopamine deficiency even though there isn't any evidence for that. There is absolutely no research evidence that that substantiates that. A lot of it comes from people making sweeping conclusions from data that just does not exist. Um, and But I did think of, um, I mean, me personally, this, this, this makes me think about when we get diagnosed, for example, and we have certain pieces of ADHD, certain symptoms that do make a lot of our life make sense and do give us, like for when I got diagnosed, um, entering, like I went from, uh, being in high school and being able to have all these different things that I did like sports and academics and was involved in grassroots organizing. And then I went to college and I I was forced to have this monofocus where I was just doing this one thing all the time. And all of a sudden I had this lack of motivation and then everything in my life just tanked. So academically I was tanking just, I was, I, I really didn't have motivation to like do a lot and I would be stuck in my room all day. And um, it was affecting my overall well-being and health. I wasn't eating properly. So I think all of these things, when I went and got an actual diagnosis, uh, which I did as an adult, then it it made a lot of my life make sense where I would have moments in my life where I would have so many of these experiences, but it wasn't consistent. And I knew that there was some context to it. And now that I kind of realized that as I entered the world of capitalism more and more <laughs> and had to encounter it and could could not divest from it, the more and more lack of motivation I felt because my inherent existence was devalued. Going from being a kid to an adult, I was all of a sudden told that I have to have this job and I have to do things that I might not even like or care about. And I just have to do them. And if I don't, I will die. It's like, right? It's like get bread or get dead. And that literally is incredibly dehumanizing. And since I have that like overwhelming realization, and also realized that I was going into medicine and science and these fields are inherently like commodified and I'm doing everything I'm doing within the context of capitalism. So now I'm working in a healthcare system where hospitals and institutions can make profits off of people being sick. Just this overwhelming understanding of my world and how heavy capitalism just dictates everything that we do had this effect of, of me losing motivation and being paralyzed. And I think that makes a lot of sense, but I, now I think we can go into, but still, there's one way to talk about it, which is by coming up with a innate biological defect that you have that somehow explains these things, or then taking the experiences of pain and legitimate suffering that you're having and actually understanding the social context of your environment and where you exist and trying to see what plays into what you're feeling. Yeah, and the pathology paradigm really kind of makes power invisible because it doesn't consider like who's in power and who is setting the the standards and the norms. It just says that you're broken and you need to fix yourself. 
Yeah, and uh, and also I think the the pathology paradigm is just uh, we we talk about this all the time in the context of racism and sexism and other forms and colonialism and forms of systemic oppression where the problem is these systems that are dominating the masses of people and inflicting oppression and harm on them and therefore people have to do what they need to do to respond to that and adapt to that and and, and our bodies adapt to that in different ways and of course the environment that we live in impacts our overall well-being so our physical health and at the same time when we think about this again this is a scientific concept that's pretty much consensus in research which is the idea of epigenetics that your traits and your behaviors and all of these manifestations of, of your biology are ultimately a influenced by heavily heavily by the environment that you exist in and the society that you live in and there's so many factors in your environment so everybody that you interact with, with your day-to-day, -day, with the systems that you're interacting with, the culture that you exist in. And all of that ultimately does shape the traits that you have and the behaviors that, that manifest. Yeah, there's this, the, the like emphasis on genetics, I think, is very telling because it implies that it's, there's nothing you can do and there's nothing that influences you. It's just these things like ADHD are like passed down and it's just written in your code and you're wired that way. And it doesn't account for the ways that the environment shapes you. Yeah. And, and I guess in that context, then the medical model feeds into the medical language of suffering. So when people are in pain, the, the medicalizing of suffering looks like blaming your pain on inherent chemical imbalances or biological defects in your brain or in your genetics that explain why you're in pain. Um, and also this blanket assignment of, of all suffering as negative and that it has no purpose and should all be eliminated. So again, this like overwhelming need to make everything and, and force it into this positive context, which is just not reality because in nature, everything exists as neutral. And then also thinking that if suffering then is, is because you are broken, then the cure to that is perceived as fixing the individual. So treatment and intervention and while that's one way of talking about suffering, the political language of suffering, I guess, is is a lot more productive in that, I hate that word, but a lot more generative um, in that it can actually lead to sustainable long-term solutions that actually change the society that you live in. So therefore, it changes how your, honestly, trauma responses manifest because you are responding to being traumatized in a very traumatizing society. Yeah, and I think people don't think about capitalism as particularly traumatic like we think about trauma as like war or like rape or like these really violent mm -hmm. incidents that happen but actually we are traumatized on a daily basis yes in terms of just the way that we're forced to live just in order to survive yes and yes to like sell our labor and our mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. do these things that we fucking hate doing yeah like going to work and doing the spreadsheets or whatever, stocking the shelves yeah. that you have to do that's like monotonous and like not fulfilling and like meaningless. And that like meaninglessness yes. that we have to do every single day yes. is, is like devaluing. soul crushing. Yeah. <laughs> it's devaluing and also is like, it really crushes your spirit <laughs> in general. And so it makes sense that like so many people are in distress. Yeah. And I think uh, actually when, when I think about trauma and the language of trauma and the field of trauma in general, there is now this general understanding that complex trauma is much harder to understand because it is so not just so complex, but also it happens for such a long time that it is normalized by every party involved. And, and therefore, that is the that is the norm. That is what's, what is considered acceptable. And. And we perceive that, for example, in childhood trauma, where the family that you grew up in, if you grew up in a, in a toxic, abusive family, then that's all you've ever known. So you will end up having these adult responses uh, as a result of, of thinking that that is just your world. And I think that's the, what that looks like under capitalism is learned helplessness, where because uh, of the way ca uh, capitalism is, is constructed, what it does is it gets people to fall into this in, into the cycle where they see the systems that they interact with as by default, this is just how society exists and uh, feel very powerless and alone because they're facing this large, violent system. And that makes sense because capitalism 
by design, since you're born into this society, you're socialized with all these values and ideas that you're alone, you're isolated. It's, it's a doggy dog world. You have to compete against each other. So you go to school, K through 12 education, essentially being told that your success happens at the expense of your uh, peers uh, and that they have to fail for you to succeed. So all these very um, arbitrary social constructs that are not the way that we uh, need to live, but you're told that there's a scarcity of resources on this planet and that scarcity mindset, which is fabricated um, because while we have plenty of resources for all of us, they're being hoarded by 1% of people and the rest of us then have crumbs that we have to fight over, which is essentially what capitalism is. And all of this boils down to you basically, the moment you realize you have to fight to survive in this society, you've basically entered a eternal fight or fight, flight survival mode. And we understand fight or flight as a, as a very uh, life-preserving trauma response when you're faced with a threat, a survival threat, um, that endangers your life, then you go into um, a mode where you're basically just focused on surviving from that point onwards. And that that do or die is is so unhealthy and toxic. And we know in the context of trauma that it breaks your body, it leads to chronic pain, it causes a all mental suffering and anguish, and it leads to your life and your actions being heavily influenced by the trauma that you experienced. But that's just capitalism because you never leave that fight or flight. So most of us do not leave fight or flight survival mode. And so I guess that leads us into the question of why self pathologization is so attractive to so many people because I have been attacked on Twitter a couple times for just talking about like basic neurodiversity stuff like you're not broken the world is broken there's no such thing as normal which means that you're not abnormal Mm -hmm. you know and people will like come into the thread and just like really aggressively defend like someone told me that I have no right to tell people that they're not broken, <laughs> which to me is like very sad. It is, you it know? is. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's us but telling them that they're like, loved and they're appreciated and their value is not equivalent to the money they make or how much, how productive they are. And it's people defending yeah. their own deceased state, essentially. <laughs> well, and I think that people also conflate this person, at least that said this conflated broken with disabled. And I think that's not necessarily true. Like, you can be disabled by society because society mm-hmm. is not accommodating you, but it doesn't mean that you're inherently broken and need to be fixed. Right. But I think people internalize this idea and really like cling to it. And it's not for no reason, you know, it's like serving a purpose or several purposes. Maybe we can dive a little bit into our like personal stories just because I think we, I didn't, obviously I didn't have the understanding that I do have neurodivergence now when I was originally diagnosed with ADHD. So have, you gone through that same arc of, of, of self-pathologizing yourself. And, and if so, why? And I guess when you did do it, what did it really, what purpose did it really serve for you? Well, I think like the first time I got a psych evaluation, I was 28 and I had been like depressed for about a year and I didn't understand why it just kind of felt like something that was like I I didn't have the tools to understand why mm-hmm. or like the ability to look at like the context of my life and like get that there were causes. It just kind of felt like this thing that was happening to me. And when I went to see a psychologist, they gave me they did like it was like a three day evaluation and they gave me like ten pages of explaining my like emotional state and whatever. And I read it and it just kind of felt like when you read like. Uh, your astrological birth chart <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, like how the fuck do they know who yep, I am? Yep. Like, it was like that moment where I was like, oh, she really gets me. Mm-hmm. And so that on the last page, there was this diagnosis and it said bipolar two. And I was like, and she didn't explain mm-hmm. like why she gave me that diagnosis. It was like a very brief, like, this is what it is. You have extreme moods and this is what it is. And this is what you are. And I was like, okay, well, I guess since like all these other nine pages were like really accurate, about my life that she must be right and she's like the professional and she knows what she's talking about so I really like it did feel like an answer when I got it and I was like finally I have a name for this and I understand like why I have been suffering emotionally for so long I have this disorder and like I'm bipolar and I really like leaned into it 
at first. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to be the best bipolar patient ever. Like, I'm going to do all the meds. I'm going to try everything. I'm going to find the ones that work for me. I'm going to, like, do all the therapy. And, like, um, the meds didn't work. And Mm -hmm. I started getting really hopeless because I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, no. Like, I have treatment-resistant bipolar disorder. Like, (laughs) And the psychiatrist Mm -hmm. told me that if I didn't get on meds, I would just, like, degenerate basically like I would just only like every episode I would get worse Mm -hmm. and so like that just really scared the shit out of me and I started getting really like more hopeless and then I found a bunch of people online who were talking about the neurodiversity movement Mm -hmm. and COVID happened and the lockdown happened and I got laid off and I was at home every day like not really going anywhere and my mood stabilized and I was like oh, I guess like maybe the meds are working now, but I'm like, I'm a very, I'm a person that like questions everything. So I was like, okay, I need to do an experiment and see if it was the circumstance or if it was the meds. And so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went off my meds. I'm not, this is not medical advice, but this is what I did. Uh, And it worked for me. And I realized that it was the circumstance and that I was just like very extremely stressed by having to, like socialize every day and mask and like that I am not really able to work a job like in the way that everyone else can. Um, Mm -hmm. But it really like was my circumstances more so than like any chemicals or whatever in my brain. And so just like going through that experience really showed me like, oh, okay, there are causes. I just need to like step back Mm -hmm. and like look at like what it is that's making me feel this way, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I had, I had a similar arc just later on in life. So, but still, I, I think it's interesting that even though I went through it much later, um, so I got diagnosed as an adult and you got diagnosed when you were a kid. And I think it's interesting because I came to the same realizations much faster. And that actually points to the lack of autonomy and agency a lot of children have when they're assigned these labels and they're, and they're diagnosed and well, what they go through after. I got diagnosed with ADHD as a teenager, but then bipolar as an adult. Right, 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 right. So ADHD, like, so for me, ADHD specifically was like as a, as in call, in grad school. Um, but essentially the arc for me for, from self-pathologizing to understanding that everything that I was uh, feeling and feeling like I don't belong, all of that was contextual, that happened much faster just in general because I had more agency then than I did as a kid. And as a kid, I had little control over my life and I would take the medications that were given to me. And I had very little control over saying if I, if, if they didn't make me feel good and if I didn't want to take them, because it was, like you said, given to you as though you have this disease. And if you do not take these medications, something terrible and fatal will happen to you. Um, so I think it just goes to show the, the role that um, just children and trauma and the lack of agency that they have sometimes plays into how these di- like the trajectory after a diagnosis for a kid. But for me, I think, um, so initially I, um, I didn't get a, a, a diagnosis, but I kind of had an understanding of like, okay, something was off. And then I started going to college counselors and these are like free college counselors. So their job is to basically get, get you back into class. Um, and, but still at the time, I think I like realized, okay, maybe ADHD was starting to describe what was, what was going on with me. But um, around the same time, when I started college, the first two years of college were really terrible and miserable for me. That's when I started seeking a diagnosis desperately because I went from in high school feeling a little bit more sense of belonging to suddenly feeling like I was such an outsider and otherized constantly and struggling to have purpose, have motivation, have any drive like I did and struggling to conform and assimilate essentially into college. And then as I found my way in college, and, and luckily for me, I guess because I started my journey into all of this, starting with grassroots activism. So I found community and I found people that understood who I was as a whole person, as a whole complex person, and just embraced me in different ways that allowed me to be myself. And I also then decided like in the third year of, of uh, my third year at UCLA that I would do what I wanted to do that I also was interested in. So I just started taking a little bit more agency in my own life to shape my world. And then I started going back to what I did in in high school, where I just did a bunch of different things, was involved and still kept my art, still also did like heart sciences, 
still in a theater, still hung out with my friends and still had the supportive community um, in the scope of grassroots activism that I didn't, honestly, I think I don't, there, a whole year would go by where I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with me. And I didn't feel like I was other and different. And, and because there were so many people that genuinely gave me validation and accepted me for who I was. And then I went to grad school. And then again, I was forced to do things that I didn't necessarily want to do or need to do. And it took away from what I was really there to do. And then I started looking for answers again and going back to psych. And that was when I was officially diagnosed and started on, on Ritalin. And then I remember I went down the trajectory of like losing our personality, just being this lab horse that just like worked all night, worked like seven days a week, 120 hours. And basically I transformed into this capitalist robot that only just worked day and night and it crushed my overall health. But also, I, I mean, I had so many side effects to these medications. And, and at the same time, I just lost pieces and pieces and pieces of me. And that was basically um, when I had to decide at some point, when I found myself oddly in the place that I was at the beginning without meds or anything, but meds had me come back to being at this like bottom, hitting rock bottom, and then having to ask myself, what the hell is wrong with me? Or... Do I need to actually just stop all of this, like everything that I do with my day to day? And I just had this like cold turkey in general with my life where I just like took a step back from work, asked for like medical leave and stopped medication and then started to realize it was pretty much the same thing that I had realized in college that I just needed to do the things I cared about. And it's so it's just interesting that like the way we find our way back is by being surrounded finally by people and community that support us. And we don't need then to turn to medication and all these things that make us feel defective. Yeah. Which is not to say that like we can't use medication. It can be a helpful tool. But I think when you look at it as like, this is the thing that's going to fix me and then it doesn't fix you, it can really make you feel a lot more hopeless. Right. And I mean, we talked about suffering being the suffering being real. These are legitimate struggles that that we experience. This is real pain. And the difference is, do you want to do something about it? And, and do you want to actually have sustainable solutions? So if you do, then you need to identify the source of that suffering. And that is this, this endless cycle of individualism that we're trapped in, where we're sometimes not focusing on the collective. But when we do, and we think about how a lot of us have these shared experiences, a lot of us have, have this shared pain, and we exist in different contexts, but there is a common source. And when we identify the systemic roots of our problems, that basically leads to us actually having somewhere to go for solutions. So solutions then tend to be community-based solutions and changing the actual system. But that's way more difficult, I guess, than, than treating yourself and, and, and medicating yourself. But at the same time, that actually is something that works in the long run. Um, and I think, I guess, I didn't realize this until I experienced all of the side effects with medication. And also realized that I was becoming more and more capitalist, becoming this worker that, you know, had all these like severe side effects, like emotional numbing. Like I felt nothing. I basically lost my humanity. Like I just felt like this robot that just had to, was going day by day, just crossing tasks off of a checklist, but felt no joy, felt no pain, felt nothing. And from that, and from realizing that it was just enhancing my trauma and giving me physical symptoms then that I never had before. So, so things like peripheral neuropathy, then I kind of realized, okay, maybe the problem is that I'm trying to fix myself when I'm not really the reason for why I'm suffering. Yeah. Do you still, like, how do you think about your suffering now? And, like, do you still take medication? Like, can those two things coexist? Yeah. And I think I had to, so the first thing that I realized when I, when I realized the medications weren't working was, as a result, I realized I had community and also that I had a lot more agency before that I even knew that the times that even as a child, I might have chosen to do something that I love, chosen actively to, to invest my time in doing maybe four things at once that I care about rather than having a monofocus. Those moments were moments of, of autonomy and agency where I was essentially rebelling against these systems that are forcing me to assimilate. And I really just didn't want to. I wanted to follow my gut. and. In those moments is, is when I was feeling the, the most accepted and healthy in general that I've ever felt. And I think that got me to realize, okay, I might need these medications, but I don't need them 
in the way that they're told I have to take them because those that was crushing me. And I went through the whole spectrum of trying basically every single medication that exists out there for ADHD within the methylphenidates and the amphetamines and eventually had to realize I tried everything. I got increasingly desensitized because eventually you do like you do become less and less sensitive and more tolerant. And at some point I was taking like four times the max dosage and just to try to like still retain these effects of monofocus and still fit in into this capitalist world that I'd already like driven myself into. And then eventually realized, okay, um, this is unsustainable. Like, I don't know what, how many medications I can mix and how high I can go until I'm like going to, you know, actually hurt myself and do something terrible. And I think that's when I realized, okay, um, maybe I need to think about how I'm feeling and how my body is responding to every single medication that I've taken and pay more attention to myself and trust myself in my gut. And since then I still take medication. I just take it when I absolutely need it. And I, for me, doing art on medication, for example, really doesn't work because medication in general, all of them have consistently just killed my nonlinear thinking, creativity, and, and made me just monofocus in ways that, that takes away from who I am. So now I don't do art or any kind of creative thinking. But if I need to do something monotonous to fit into a capital society, oddly, that's when I like rely on medication because I just don't care and I do not want to do that. It helps us do the capitalism. <laughs> we need the stimmies to do the cappies. <laughs> but at the same time, oh wait, so you asked, like, how do I frame my suffering now? I think I still talk mm. about the same things. I don't think I complain less. <laughs> I think I complain way more, if anything. So if you really need to complain, like, oh, is this podcast for you? <laughs> <laughs> Like I complain so much more now that I'm radicalized. Are you kidding? <laughs> but the difference is I complain in community. <laughs> I complain with other people that are also yeah. experiencing the same things that I'm experiencing and empathize and are compassionate about, about what I'm going through. And collectively have this idea that we're, you know, we're not in this world just to exist in a vacuum by ourselves, that we happen to exist because you know, we have people we care about and we, we care about other people. So we're going to do something about the society. So I guess I'm in community with people that share the same experiences as I do. Other people that identify as neurodivergent, but people that are willing to invest in their communities and do something to change the systems that are really causing our suffering. So I still talk about it, but now I try to look at, and I think that's kind of beautiful because it got me to, and I was very happy I went down this route, decentering myself. And it was sort of an ego death in, a, in, in the most beautiful way where I realized I was a part of something much greater than myself. And I would rather be in community with other people and do things that, that matter because I care about the people I'm around and rather than just focus on myself constantly because pathologizing and self-pathologizing then seeking answers by relying on treating yourself, it is such a self-centered process that by design, as I went through that arc of diagnosis and medical, like medicalizing myself, I was more and more isolated because I thought that I was so uniquely different in my struggle that no one really understood what I was going through. And the struggles that I had with side effects with medication was I wasn't telling anybody about them because I was embarrassed that I was like overdosing myself basically and trying to like, like fight this like weird, which I, I think there is, there is the stigma, a legitimate stigma of, of people being alone and isolated and lonely and having different problems and thinking they're the only one suffering from them when it's so much easier if you just realize there's someone else that could sit in the dark with you. Yeah, there's like over 300 diagnoses in the DSM, but there's like not that many human behaviors. <laughs> so there's not that really many ways like you can all, be weird. <laughs> there's not that many ways you can like, yeah, be different and suffer. And I think we are all kind of experiencing very like people talk about like how there's so much overlap between the diagnoses and like oh isn't that weird but like it's not weird to me because I feel like we are all experiencing very similar kinds of distress but we're calling it different things you know and you said so, like, earlier, you have borderline and you have bipolar yeah but, like you know but we're both experiencing ex extreme mood states but, so, but like, the names, the, the, the like, basically we have these different micro identities that have been created. So different diagnoses yeah. then get our labels that get pinned on people. And when you were describing your diagnosis, I, like, I thought it was interesting that you phrased it as when you got diagnosed, you were told like, this is what you are. And 
And that is basically what a diagnosis does to you. It does the same thing as any other social construct, which is that it puts you in a box and gives you the confines that you have to exist in and basically tells you that there's people with other box in other boxes with different labels and they're so different than you and they will not understand what you're going through. So basically social constructs like race, gender, and mental illness in this case are, are created to divide people and to get them to feel like there's innate biological, and that's the common denominator, that there's innate biological differences between you all that make you so honestly different in like un, in dehumanizing ways that it creates this us versus them binary where you look at other people as a, almost a different species where you forget that you have so many commonalities and you have so many shared experiences, the greatest being that you're all suffering under capitalism and that we all deserve so much better. And it's kind of sad that if I didn't choose to be born in this goddamn world, that maybe if I was forced into it, I should be given food, water, and shelter. And that's so sad that none of us have that. So maybe like that, all of that is hidden and instead, we're just hyper-focusing on these labels because words sound different, the labels sound different, the diagnosis sounds different, so it must be different. And yet when you see that even the symptoms in the DSM, there's so many overlapping ones and there's so many that sound the same. And in general, if you just look at it with a critical eye, one thing you'll realize is none of them are quantifiable, that none of these traits are, are physical measurements that you can make in your body. And that's how diseases are seen in the context of other fields of medicine. And psychiatry is really unique in that anybody can make up a trait and call it abnormal and then call it a symptom. Yeah, that's actually how the DSM was created, that like a few people like voted basically on which disorders they wanted to include. A lot of them who were being paid by pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> and there are actually people who were involved in that process who now have said, that these diagnoses are not scientifically valid because they don't have, um, what's the word for when you make a diagnosis and another doctor makes the same one? There's a word for like, you know. <laughs> I like, know what you're talking about. So yeah. basically it's how they look. Editor Jess here. The term I was looking for was inter-reader reliability. Okay. It's it, Okay, well, I guess we can break it down. It's how they look, check for reproducibility and, yeah, and accuracy yeah. and precision of the mm-hmm. diagnosis. So if the same patient shows up to do to two different doctors and both the doctors are able to diagnose yeah. the patient with the same disease, then you're there's more objectivity involved in that process. Yeah, and it's really bad for <laughs> psychiatric <laughs> diagnoses. Like, it's not accurate, <laughs> which is why so many people will get, like, so many different diagnoses when they go to different psychiatrists and you just collect this, like, laundry list. Like, I have a laundry list now. <laughs> I have, like, five or six because I went to see, like, different people and they, they said right. different things about me, you know? And, and it was interesting that different doctors were iffy about medication in different ways. Uh, and I think this is just because I'm, so I, I uh, specialize in infectious diseases. So I want to point out that different fields of medicine do not perceive um, medication the same way as psych in that with psych, everything is sort of throwing a dart in the air and seeing where it lands. Whereas in other fields of medicine, like infectious diseases, you have guidelines and treatment recommendations where you treat certain bacteria with certain antibiotics because that's just what's known and, med- and like well-published and proven to work because it will kill it. And that is not what, what psychiatry is <laughs> because medications in psychiatry, and we'll go into a whole ep- ep- episode, just focus on medication, um, but it's, it's given very arbitrarily. And there are no guidelines, there are no treatment recommendations for, for any of these uh, uh, DSM diagnoses. So people are going to go to doctors and get a different opinion pretty much every time. Well, it's like a guessing game. Like everyone's like, you know, it's so hard to find the right meds. You just got to keep trying different ones. But like, it's because they don't actually know what the fuck they're doing. Well, but then that's a, that, that just says a lot about what you're trying to fix, <laughs> yeah. right? Like how how concrete is this thing if the if the target moves so so rapidly and it's it, everyone everyone has a different experience and we actually even normalize this language we talk about how everyone's experience with medication is different in psych and how everyone has different side effects but in other fields of medicine like there is still a lot of biological variation but we have a much more concrete understanding of definite physical traits that will make you for example certain people have a penicillin allergy so if they take penicillin as an antibiotic they will have an allergic reaction and that is a guarantee and <laughs> 
That is not how it works for psych. So there is this big difference between there being known what, what is known about like the biological basis of, of, of things in other fields of medicine and what is psych? Because, and we've talked about this phrase a lot where people say, um, taking psych meds for a mental illness is like someone who's diabetic taking insulin. Yeah. And scientifically, it is not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is not at all the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And I know that it's framed as a radical statement, but. So I think we talked a little bit about self pathologizing and how it lends itself to commodifying our identities. And I found a few TikTok videos we can watch about this. So this is a video by ADHD fluencer Kobe Watts, who has 848,000 followers on TikTok. This is so crazy. Uh, Number one bestseller in teaching students with mental disabilities. My ADHD handbook is out now. I just want to say thank you to anyone who has got it. Yeah, it's just crazy. Life is so full of surprises. Thanks again, guys. Um, <laughs> so, I think, so, okay, first, I think what's really it. funny is that he's like, he's like, I'm number one in treating mental disabilities. And I'm like, yes. I mean, that's what caught my eye because I don't know who this person is. And I mean, it's interesting that they have all this authority, right? Because they do speak with certain authority when you have this like number one bestseller on Amazon and that is assigning a certain dollar value to what you have to produce, right? So it's like this arbitrary metric that somehow tells me that this person is qualified to be able to just do anything. And I don't know. I don't know if he's qualified to do anything, really, from that. Um, <laughs> but um, it does uh, point out something really important, I think, about uh, why, why capitalism actually does this. So what is in it for capitalism? So what is in it for rich people to create the system that makes us feel like we're broken and defective and deceased? And that's because capitalism relies so heavily on, on, on identity. And why was race created, right? Race was created, um, again, as an aftermath of there being a lot of solidarity between poor working class workers on plantations that were both uh, coming from different parts of Europe and Africa. Um, and it was useful then to break that solidarity by, by fabricating this idea of biological differences based on skin color, um, which is very arbitrary. So you could say that uh, people with different eye colors are inherently different breeds of people, right? <laughs> you could pick something random about your body and create a difference based on that, but, but that's not true. So um, that was responsible for basically meta- the, what, what became racial capitalism. And I think Capitalism does that consistently. It just creates these arbitrary social categories to put people in that divides them. And in this case, I guess the, the next uh, thing that capitalism is focusing on is is mental illnesses. Because the moment you have a category, you have a whole group of people that have these focused identities with specific things that they identify with that they think other people do not identify with that then makes them a really good, quote unquote, consumer base. <laughs> Yeah, it's a market. And now Colby is is capitalizing on the market by selling his ADHD workbook that's going to fix your brain and make you better at working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and that is presented and, uh, and and we've seen this with the TikToks we've watched as if you're if you're going to pathologize yourself, if you're going to say that there's an effectively something deeply biologically wrong with you, then the solution is going to be using all of these uh, products that are on the market to be able to try to fix that. So it's not just medication, but it's all these tools and handbooks and apps and all these things that are marketed to you as a solution. And, and I think the first thing that's more really interesting about all of that is just who decides access and why are all these things being given to you as the answer? And what is really in it is, is that these generate profit. And these are ultimately going to generate a lot of wealth for a certain 1%. And people in general that are consuming these things are still going to be different <laughs> because maybe just maybe there's nothing about you to cure. Well, and, and, and we suffer more trying to fit, you know, like, I feel like the thing that really made me have a lot of emotional distress was just like trying to mask all the time and trying to like act like everybody else and like trying to do these things that I like really can't do, you know? And now there's yeah. this whole industry of like coaches that can like teach you how to do it and like coach you through it. And these like coaches, like they don't have to have really like uh, qualifications, like really stringent yeah. qualifications at all. Yeah. And like I found another uh, video where someone has 
labeled themselves as an ADHD coach connector where like they're not even a coach but they just will talk to you and ask you what you want and then they'll connect you like this is how many coaches there are they'll connect you to someone that they think will help you the best they're like a matchmaker for ADHD coaches <laughs> so you were diagnosed with ADHD early on and they gave you a pill and sent you on your way and said good luck well, that's not gonna work anymore because you're an adult and you still haven't been able to take back your life. I am the ADHD connector and I can get very specific on your goals, your intentions and your challenges and then connect you with ADHD coaches and other resources that are specific and personalized to your needs. Take a look at my bio. I'm so excited to talk soon. Well, one, I thought it was interesting that Doja Cat was playing in the background as this person was making up, making up a job for themselves, which is basically what I call product marketing. Right. They call themselves the ADHD yeah. connector. I mean, it sounds like Homelander or just like this. I don't know who you are, who you think you are. Like, um, but I thought it was just um, um, interesting because in general, what you're showing is that there's all of these products and, and industries that open up then the moment people have these hardcore identities that they identify with. And that is not isolated to just mental health, right? What we're showing is actually pretty well known and understood maybe in other contexts like racism and colonialism, and even, even in the context of gender, because the moment you have certain categories, capitalism pretty much profits off of everything, including all forms of injustice. So woke washing is pretty common. So we understand that social movements are often co-opted by politicians and companies, for example, companies using BLM um, marketing and at a very convenient time when they were able to generate a lot of profits off of it, right? Or uh, thinking of diversity and inclusion as this uh, brand of superficial efforts made by companies and institutions to change the color of the cover and tokenize black and brown people and make it seem like there's so much diversity, which somehow is reflective of actual change when it's not. But that's not even limited to identities. This is what capitalism does. So greenwashing is when companies like say that they're green and they have all these uh, gimmicks to to show and, and mislead people into believing that they're environmentally friendly, but there's no actual business practice changes. And there's like oil companies that brand themselves now as eco-friendly, which is ironic. So in general, capitalism takes something and then finds a way to make money off of it because that's what it's designed to do. And <laughs> it's just interesting that this all these videos are just, they sound like ads, right? They're, they sound like marketing ads and they, there's all this like peppy music and is just telling you that you need to buy this product. You're my consumer, please buy this product. And that's what TikTok is doing. It's creating a consumer base and telling you what to buy. And that's what algorithms do. They tell you what to believe in and tell you what to think and tell you what to want. <laughs> yeah, and now we're neuro washing everything. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and I found this other video uh, where someone is questioning whether they should um, enlist the help of an ADHD coach. Someone please tell me if this is a cult or not. I'm really struggling with my ADHD stuff. So I was like, maybe it's worth looking into an ADHD coach. And Gabby heard me talking to them on speaker and Gabby thinks it's a cult. How is it not a cult? She said that my brain was a beautiful Porsche and I just don't have a license. She also said you don't have a disability and that they can fix you. Everything but what if they could? Baby, you said, can I have some time to think about it or can I try it out for a month? And she said, no. She said she was going to make me a follow through machine. This is literally <laughs> executive success program in Nexium. Explain to me, why are none of them therapists? Why are none of them mental health professionals? Why have they all just done this one woman's program and then become coaches? It like costs $689 a month. She said it was no contract, but I do have to emotionally commit to for nine, nine months. months. Yeah, I don't have that money. <laughs> you don't have the emotional commitment either. <laughs> okay, this is actually, I mean, this is people, I think, depicting something very, very real that we kind of all know when we get a little cringe when we watch these things, but don't know how to, like, talk about it, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, like, it they're is picking that, up on, they're picking up on what we're talking about, that it's like yeah. someone is trying to, like, take, Selling like, it. this identity and, like, make money <laughs> off of it, but they, yeah. like, didn't, like, really like express that like explicitly but like they're no like, but they, they pick up, it. Up things <laughs> off about it like they all talk the yeah. same they have this peppy music but what is that that is marketing that is marketing 101 that's what people are trained to do when it comes to product management to be able to like market products to you because marketing relies mm -hmm. so heavily on understanding people's psychology and there's a reason algorithms are built on on understanding the mind because 
the mind is like the next playground for capitalism and commodifying the mind and convincing people that they need different products to fix their brain is like the next industry. It literally is. And, and we know that ADHD is, I think it's what, like a $2 billion industry where there's uh, like legitimate profits. Over 20, 20 oh. something billion. Like it's like, okay. it's a lot of money. <laughs> and that's just, that's not the whole industry. Like that's just the pharmaceutical side. Right. Of it. So we're like- not covering, we're not covering what they're talking about. We're not covering coaching. We're not covering all of these yeah. like random ass influencers being paid to do things. And I think also just, um, interesting how uh they were when they were talking about um things not being really fixed with the like like all these people are being told that they have this magical answer and the key to the you know to all your problems and how you still have these problems after you you consume this product whatever it is if it's coaching or or like an app and ultimately that's because the solution that we need to really get to to be able to improve any of our lives is actually changing the context of a society that we exist in that makes us feel broken in the first place. And I think it was important that just by, you know, the person that was um, <laughs> with the with the main person talking about how they've been dealing with this cult, um, they were talking about how society disables you. And therefore, these people are trying to convince people that you can actually fix them and you can make their pain go away. And we're absolutely acknowledging your pain because we're telling you it will not go away with... <laughs> Um, trying to make yourself the problem that your suffering is real and it's so real that it will be persistent and it will evolve and change in response to your environment because that's what it's designed to do. And therefore coming up with um, ways that you can reframe that and just take your suffering and try to understand the systems that you're engaging with and how they dehumanize you and your community does not actually mean that you're going to be, it actually means it's the opposite. You're going to find community as a result because there's so many people out there with shared experiences and you can work together to be able to not just change systems, but find healthy ways of surviving today. So, I mean, our whole podcast is focused on how do we actually survive in the matrix while trying our best to unplug from the capitalist matrix because we're forced to survive right now. And I think community and finding community and being able to understand how our suffering is all connected ultimately gets us to be accomplices and allies against the same cause. And that's just a way for us to survive as we're slowly building a better society and taking down these systems like colonial psychiatry that just don't work for us. Comrades. We got to find our (laughs) comrades. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our first ever episode. We're very excited to talk to other thinkers, artists, and activists in this field. So tune in to episode two, where we sit down with our friend and colleague, Marta Rose, to talk about alternatives to the pathologizing framework of executive function and experiments in building real community support in digital spaces. All the TikToks from this episode are linked in the show notes, and you'll also find some further reading in there if you want to dig deeper into some of the topics that we talked about. Keep up with us by subscribing to disorderland.substack.com. And if you're someone who wants to talk to us about mental health through an abolitionist lens, get in touch at disorderland at gmail.com.